Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today in the program, we speak to Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy and Portfolio Manager Ramona Prasad. They highlight sector shifts and dividend opportunities in 2024. Host Pamela Ritchie asks Ramona as 2023 wraps up, how is she navigating the current market dynamics and how that influences her investment decisions? Ramona says her approach still revolves around three main objectives, access returns, downside protection, and a reasonable level of income. As a conservative investor, volatility is a critical consideration and aligning the investor experience with the fund's performance. Ramona says for 2024, a nuanced market might make way for underappreciated sectors to undergo a resurgence. Denise highlights unit labor costs as a key metric and a significant part of the why behind interest rates shaping investment decisions. She also talks about compensation costs, the Federal Reserve, and earnings growth prospects. This podcast was recorded on December 7th, 2023. But let's begin with some of the data deluge. What's what's the most important bit? It does all seem to be adding up to inflation's coming off the boil. Yes, I mean, that's the thesis. So of all the data that's coming across the tape at any given time, I think the inflation data is the most important to look at. And I think that I want to draw investors' attention to one specific piece of data, which is unit labor costs. Now, of all the moving parts of inflation, there's goods inflation, there's service inflation, there's overall, there's core. One of the things that the Federal Reserve has said over and over is that to the extent that wage co- wage compensation is sticky, then maybe core services inflation will be sticky, and then maybe overall inflation will be sticky, and then we will have to stay hawkish longer. Now, look, I mean, I think that there are a couple of problems with that train of thought when you look back historically, but regardless, that is what the Federal Reserve has told us. But when you look at that compensation cost, they have come down in terms of growth rate has slowed, but the most important variable to watch for the markets is really unit labor costs. And that's a combination of compensation costs per unit of output, which basically embodies the fact that compensation costs are coming down, but productivity is coming up. So when you look back historically, what we've seen is two quarters ago, we saw some of the fastest growing unit labor costs that we've ever seen since the 80s. And that really showed you just how different this cycle was. And everybody pointed to that and said, see, inflation's higher. We've never seen this in our investment time horizon, our investable lifetime. It's all very different right now. It's going to be higher for longer, stickier for longer, change your investment process around it. And what have you seen over the last six months? You've seen unit labor costs come down dramatically quickly, so much so that we're basically in the middle of the range that we were usually in from the 1990s. Why is that important? That's important because that is what drives corporate profit margins, which is what drives earnings growth. So the fact that we've finally seen an inflection means that earnings growth can be higher than I think many investors think in 2024. That is fascinating. And it's so helpful to have you know, a specific piece of data to actually really extra zero in on. So I don't know how how much everyone here joining you here today reads Barron's. I try to read Barron's as often as possible. You must buy it this week. Yes. It is an absolute essential buy this week. Ramona Prasad has the most amazing article about her style of investing, how she does it, how she's come to it, her history, her approach. 
and, and really lovely photographs sort of that go along with the whole the whole thing. So anyway, let's start with what I'm trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then so um, very quickly, I'm trying to achieve three things, right? Excess return, downside protection, and a reasonable level of income. So I am a conservative investor. So the, the question becomes, how conservative do I want to be in any given market environment? And really what that is, is risk-adjusted total return. And I should add that I care a lot about aligning the investor experience with the fund experience. So what that means is you have to be very sensitive to volatility. Volatility is like a tax or like a frictional cost or like drag. Think of like drag on a car when you're driving. So what it does is it actually harms the ultimate return that the fund experiences in compounded terms. And when you've got, and so on top of that, when you've got volatility, it rattles investor, the more volatility you have, the more um, rattled investor confidence will become, which means that they'll churn more. So your returns already impacted by volatility and with investor churn, what that means is you start to get this divergence between the investor experience and the fund experience, which is what I want to avoid. So I spent all this time on that because while I'm looking for excess return, I'm doing it in a very volatility sensitive way in order to align the fund experience with the investor experience. So that's the backdrop. Today, um, what we have is what looks like narrow valuation spreads, and we can like debate Today, a little bit yeah, if you want. I think they're higher. Sorry. <laughs> I think they're not high enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that uh, embedded in that is not just that we love to like have some drama, <laughs> we love to debate, it's fun. It's that because of my conservatism, my, my thresholds will tend to be higher because what I'm really trying to do is protect downside. And I'm okay if I get reasonable upside, but I really, really want great downside protection. And so that will orient me towards mm-hmm. needing higher thresholds or say dispersion in valuations, which is essentially a measure of fear. So I yes. find dispersion not high enough today, but inside of sectors, there's enough dispersion in certain risky sectors yep. to, now answer, to actually now answer your question to bend me more in favor of sort of less defensiveness, especially given the macro backdrop that Denise just shared. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's go. Thank you. So let's go to the sectors themselves and, and where you take them with a little bit more dispersion and, and your outlook for next year. It, it must be a case of, of looking at the interest rate story still. I, for me, that's definitely the case because I think that that's one of the more important trends. I think 2022 to 2023 was a massive shift in terms of what we saw where we discounted a recession that didn't end up happening. And I think we're in for potentially another shift mm-hmm. in the odds of 2023 into 2024. So 2023, this year has really been defined by rising interest rates and decelerating and declining earnings growth. And I think if my thesis plays out with all the drivers in place, for stronger than expected earnings growth in 2024, we might flip that entirely to accelerating earnings growth. And given we've seen inflation come in to the downside in terms of expectations, the Fed may in fact be cutting. And we can dive into whether or not that that's really a good thing or a bad thing, but that definitely shifts your sector odds. And the biggest incremental change is to the interest rate sensitive sectors like real estate and financials. Now they haven't been, and on top of the fact that they've actually deeply lagged the S&P over the last two years, this is where fear is widest in terms of valuation spreads. And what we're seeing is in the banks, at least multiples be you know in the bottom 10% on an absolute basis of the historical data. And that creates at least the possibility of the fact that this there's a coiled spring in sectors that have deeply lagged with a potential catalyst that changes the odds on a bunch of other signals that are actually pointing in the right direction. Now, I'm not saying that 
I think that this is secular leadership. I think the risk rewards that we're seeing in the market in terms of where the dislocations are and where valuation spreads are wide is still apparent in consumer discretionary and technology. Those have been two leadership areas to date, and I do still think that the risk rewards are positive. So as much as I'm talking about a change going into next year, I think that there is some leadership that is likely to be um, cohesive and consistent. But I do think that I've been talking to portfolio managers about watching your underweights in interest rate sensitive areas, because I think that there's the potential for the perfect storm coming that's the exact other way than, than people think. So, Ramona, if you don't mind picking up on that and take us into, first of all, how you generally look at financials, but but ultimately, if within that sector, there's something that you find interesting or less interesting. Yes. So having covered financials, not just covered them, but covered them during not just any right. crisis, but the global, <laughs> during the global financial crisis, and not just in the U.S., but globally, I've, <laughs> I have some some views, and you know, I try to be careful that they're not some biases. And so speaking of thresholds, I tend to have a really strict threshold for valuation on financials. Just having gone through that and having seen how black boxy they are and how much they can hurt you. So for me, I really like financials when they get cheap on book value, however however you want to measure it. And so we got there in this uh, latest crisis in March where I was very underweight around that time. We had some really great research that our analysts did going into that crisis that didn't exactly, you can't really predict specifically what a crisis will look like or what the source will be because often it's exogenous, but you can look at valuations and you can look at some other things. And so the analysts did a wonderful job identifying some factors that, that just look very risky to me. So I was very, very underweight. And since, given that we got some really good valuation opportunities since then, I've been closing that underweight. It's important to know that financials in all of my strategies tends to be a very big, the largest, weight in the benchmark. So it will tend to be a structural underweight for me. So the question becomes how big of an underweight I want it to be. And it's a pretty small underweight today, given everything that Denise has said, and in some cases, some, some decent valuations. And so Denise, you mentioned sort of watching your underweights, where, where those are. Let, let's sort of bring that into the cut story and, and discuss what, what could happen there. There's, there's always two ways of looking at cuts. Well, there's probably more. Yes. Who I know about it. Right. And I think that, you know, that there are data scientists and there are strategists who will certainly tell you one picture of, okay, let's go back and look at all the uh, interest rate cuts uh, going back in time. And there are a bunch of different ways to calculate it. And I think that there's a bunch of different ways to divide it up. And they're all very important to understand. So first, when you think about like all just the rolling data, like any time throwing darts, the Fed is cutting versus hiking, they actually carry roughly the same odds of a market advance. So as much as we want to think like accommodation is really what the market needs over most of the periods, and again, this is rolling all the periods, it actually doesn't matter as much as other things. But there is sort of a special situation of first cuts and what they mean. Look, now we have less data. And it starts to depend on how you define cut, right? Because the target rate wasn't around since 19, you know, has only been around since 1982. So you got to use the discount rate before then. That's what I use. So it starts to depend on your definition. And then when you think about the first cut in terms of when the recession hits, a potential recession hits, the way I define it is if any if anything happens, you know, from a recession perspective over the next 12 months, then that's a recessionary cut. 
Um, and if not, then it's a non-recessionary cut. So look, the definitions are very important. And what you can see is a very clear differential between what happens to stocks in recessions and what happens to stocks in non-recessionary events. And oh, by the way, if you think that whenever the Fed is cutting, that there must be a problem, it's actually 50-50. So there's no incremental odds to know, well, if the Fed is cutting, it must be bad, or if the Fed is cutting, it must be good. You sort of have to have another variable to help yourself. My other variable that I use is earnings growth, and that's not exactly recession related, but they're close. So to the extent that you start to divide initial rate cuts and when earnings growth is accelerating, all of a sudden you see a very clear picture of cyclicality leading. And if you see a situation where the Federal Reserve is cutting, but earnings growth is decelerating or back into contraction. That's a very defensive story where consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, the old telco, they work. So you really almost have to take your decision tree and say, okay, the Fed's cutting, that's one variable, but I need to add in my growth variable or my recession call, if you will, and that will tell you more about what to own. For me, the way I think about that recession call and the earnings growth call and what matters, one, I will tell you that your recessionary risk is much lower, 75% lower, when real income growth is positive as it is now. So we're in a much better setup going into 2024 than we were coming into 2023. So that's point number one. Point number two, there's a bunch of reasons behind the, the collapse in inflation that is very good for corporate profit margins, which we sort of talked about. Yes. And then potentially the most important point is that essentially what this all means is that it's not the cut that matters. It's the why are they cutting that matters. And I think when you look at all the inflation data, X the shelter component, which is lagged and has been sticky, it's the only sticky part of core inflation. Everything else is actually on a year on year basis been under 2% growth for five months. To the extent that we actually see the shelter component start to decelerate as we think it should, given that rental deflation has come in rapidly, this puts the Fed in a very different position and they have the ability to cut because real rates are potentially too high. And we have seen the Fed do things like this before in 1966, I think in 1985, uh, and even in 2018. Uh, we saw that they were a little bit more aggressive and then just recalibrated policy to the right level of inflation. So, so Ramona, what, what do you do with, I, I don't know if decision tree is, is one of the ways you would look at this, but I mean, it does come down to, you know, why is the cut happening? How, how do you look at that when you're looking at what you would one day like to buy when it's in the right place for you? Bring that into your decision making process for us. So for me, what Denise is saying makes a lot of sense. So this idea, I think what you're trying to, you know, what you've said here is unit labor costs are, are a big part of the why. Yes, um, absolutely. Labor, a big part of the why, big part of the why in terms of rates, but then a big part of the why in terms of earnings. And so that gets you to kind of, the, for me, the more tangible why. So what's interesting then is if I do valuation on earnings that might be underestimated, then all of a sudden valuation might not be as unattractive as, as it seems today. But I don't even need that. Like if I go just look inside, if I try to keep it simple and look inside of sectors and even regions and look at dispersion, there's some pretty good dispersion in yeah. parts of Europe, like the UK and Canada. I keep Europe. hearing this. Yeah, I've been thinking mm -hmm. of you. I keep hearing headlines like maybe this time. So I'm dying to know what you think about UK and Europe. Take us regionally oh. for a second. 
Sure, and some good dispersion inside of some sectors too. Some cyclical, yeah. cyclical interest rate sectors that haven't really picked up on on what Denise is saying. So in this way, while I might be more defensive, I could still I can still subscribe to what you're saying and keep my sort of conservative bent. Right. So we talked about financials, discretionary. I think yeah, I think we we done discretionary in tech. So what I'm looking for in say discretionary or even staples is good valuation and good quality companies, which can be hard to find. So I'll give you a couple in the UK that I think I've talked about in the past. There's one called B&M Value Retail, which is a discount. So I think the Canadian equivalent would be Dollarama yes. or, or Trina in the US where it's very discounted products. And what I like is not it, not so much that it's discounted retail, which is fine. It's that they're amazing capital allocators. What I'm trying to do is find the best capital allocators across the world in whatever sector. You could find it in any sector. Some sectors are easier than others. And what I mean by that is they know how to run the run the retail operations so that they generate strong, predictable, consistent free cash flow. They then know that's not, you know, as the Barron's article said, yeah. you then need to know what to do with it. So you need yeah. to know how to balance between giving it back and reinvesting it really well. And so I, to me, they are unique in doing this. So I just wait for the stock to get cheap. And the stock gets cheap when we are worried about macro conditions, we're worried about con the consumer, and we're worried about, say, the region, in this case, the UK. So that's an example. Another one in the UK, actually, is um, WH Smith, which is the retailer you would find in a in an airport so this is, again, another incredible capital allocator. I've known this company um, for 15 years or so, where same thing. It's not a particularly interesting or glamorous business. Right. You go to the, you're sort of a captive audience. You're getting on a plane and you go into the store. You pay your 10 bucks for your bag of nuts and like $15 for your magazine. And you're willing to do that somehow. Um, but more importantly, they run the store extremely efficiently, generate very high returns on capital, great strong free cash flow, and redeploy it really well. And the case, and and so I just wait for a company like that to get cheap enough, where to me it's an above average business for a below average multiple. In continental Europe, if you want me to keep going, there's this big there's this big remilitarization theme. Um, this we went through this in in the article as well, where you've had this long, long, long period of peace and prosperity. That now looks a little bit more questionable since Russia, Ukraine, and of course, the Middle East. And so all of these countries in Europe, certainly with Russia, Ukraine and energy security, are taking up defense budgets. So there is a big spending cycle coming and there are some direct beneficiaries of this. Now, of course, those stocks would have re-rated very quickly. But the great thing about many types of businesses is there's so much interesting volatility in the stocks so when I talk about volatility, I'm talking about the volatility profile of my fund. I right. wait for interesting volatility in stocks to get better valuations. So these are sort of black boxy businesses. And there are times when the sentiment just dips really low and you can buy this incredible sort of long cycle, long up cycle of defense spending for really good valuation. So those are some European examples that are looking interesting. That is, is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it, it's just so interesting to to kind of see what comes back. You look at the European situation, it is, of course, so different than it was, you know, a year, year and a half ago. Denise, take this just a little bit further onto sort of the labor front. You, you talked about the unit labor price, but sort of broadly speaking, we, we know that the Fed needs to look out for this as much as they need to take on the recessionary issues. 
give us a sense of the labor market. We hear about some layoffs, but they, they tend to be sort of contained in certain areas. It's not it's not a broad theme. Right. It's not been a broad theme. I think this year has been about technology layoffs, and then it really didn't broaden out. And I would say layoffs got a little bit better. You could use data that say they're picking up, but broadly speaking, that they've been low. Um, and I think that there are investors sort of waiting for that final collapse. And the one cautionary note I would send to that waiting for that final collapse uh, is that we might be mistaking a renormalization of the labor market for a recession. And I think that as job openings came down and came down a little bit more than we expected over the, over the course of the last week, that's really the renormalization. As the supply of labor, has everybody has come back to the market, oh, it turns out we're actually not that tight, right? The rise in the unemployment rate, is that a problem or is it just indicative of, well, when prices were high, it actually called supply and the right way the free market works, which is to renormalize the labor market while still having some level of growth. So that growth in you know, net you know, payrolls has grown much more slowly, but is still growing. And the interesting part is growing despite the fact that earnings growth has contracted. contracted. To the extent that I'm right, and we'll see, and the risk reward is actually higher for earnings growth next year, it's less likely that jobs decline in 2024. So we've already seen the contraction and corporations had enough free cash flow and enough um, to, to not be able to, to lay off the, the, the bulk of their workforce, uh, in part because the consumer continues to spend and that continued to power uh, the economy ahead. So I think that as you think about labor, there I get a lot of questions on doesn't the, the Federal Reserve need to see jobs contract? because they're so concerned about growth leading to inflation. And I think that what, and I should not say what I think that the Fed is looking for, because they don't call me an ask. And more so, they're not looking for, right? I mean, remember, um, Powell said, I think a month before he raised by 75 basis points, they were not even really thinking about 75 basis right. points. So they're not actually going to tell any of us. But I think when you look back historically at the data, what they're really looking for is a normalization in the labor market from something that was very tight to something that's at least moving in the less tight direction, which is the definition of the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate, to me, doesn't scare me so much as I think that we're seeing a renormalization that's appropriate for where wages have been and where supply of labor was. Ramona, just take us through sort of within sectors, areas that you like that, that perhaps are defensive. I'm thinking about sort of the staple zone, which, which you've been talking about a little bit. But when we spoke before, you're, you're just talking about looking into higher beta. So maybe within a similar sector itself, but remixing, I think was one of the terms you used. Just, just tell us a bit about that. Staples dispersion for the longest while was just very narrow. So there was, there was a lot of hiding, I guess you could say, in staples. And recently, in the last couple of months with GLP-1s, and this, <laughs> there's a lot of momentum, if you will, in GLP-1 drugs and fear that's now shown up in staples, which makes them more interesting. And, and similarly to how I spoke about financials, typically being a structural underweight, staples and healthcare, especially large cap pharma, will tend to be structural overweights because I can drive quality, lower beta, and oftentimes valuations, such as from large cap healthcare, from those sectors. Utilities really depend on valuation. So with that backdrop, when staples get low dispersion, 
and people are hiding in them, it gets really hard. So that's where we were, what, like two months ago. And then recently that dispersion's opened up. So what's tricky is that if we're in this era, like if Denise's view is right, that earnings might accelerate and that's the why to loosening monetary policy, that is not good for any kind of defensive sector. So I've got to balance that with what I'm trying to do from a what I'm trying to do from a portfolio construction basis and from the fact that there's just higher dispersion in that sector. So the way that I resolve that is all right, I would tend to just remix inside of a sector. So I would look for just probably at this point, um we should talk about market cap cap. Yes, issues. definitely. I would yeah. look for smaller, I would look for cheaper, yeah. I would look for stuff that's just kind of acting more that that's got more of a discretionary feel to it. So a perfect example, would you like an example? Yes. Is, um, yeah. <laughs> For our wonderful Canadian audience is Couchard, great Quebec company, excellent cap. Again, the theme is capital. And I think actually they wrote this up in the article. The theme is capital allocation. So it's not necessarily that that business run by anybody else is a great business. That business run by them is an excellent business. You've got the store, the retail store, and you've got fuel retail, and which is a really tough business. It's in perhaps structural decline. So they're basically similar to WH Smith, like grabbing a lot of cash flow from fuel retail, reinvesting it into the, into the front store extremely well for incredible returns on capital and cash flow. And you can get that often when the sentiment around fuel retail like is terrible, you can buy that stock really cheap. So that's an example of something that is technically a staple that has some good discretionary pieces to it. I'll remind yeah. everyone to read Barron's and there's something about a melting ice cube that goes with that story, but they'll have to buy it to see, to see what that means. Yeah. The, the idea of cap, how, like, can you afford to go to lower caps at this point? This, this is the question of breadth. Take us through it. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it, people have said, and it's true, it's been a narrow market with being dominated by tech and technology-like companies in the Magnificent Seven. And the thesis around the market broadening out hasn't worked yet, but none of the signals have changed. So when you look in history, what you'll find is the more narrow markets are, the more likely the market is to be up the next 12 months, and the more likely it is to broaden out and include other sectors. So one of the things that I talked about in the broadening out thesis, and I do think that this is still the thesis, is financials and real estate, but it's also down the cap spectrum, which where I do think that you can take advantage of opportunities. That's where valuation spreads are the widest. That's where you get the best valuation relative to, to, small, to large caps. And you'll find it in both small caps, you know, the Russell 2000, and the mid caps. So to the extent you're worried about the secular decline, we've got a whole bunch of non-earners. Mm -hmm. um, in the mid cap space, median to median, median mid cap stocks actually grow faster than median large cap stocks. Mm -hmm. And not for the first time since the bubble, the tech wreck, they're actually cheapest on their lease yield. We're in that st same zone. And that has changed your odds historically. So we have a very different setup, I think, for SMIDs than we have had any time over the last 10 years. So I think that the risk reward is quite positive to go down the cap spectrum. So it sounds like both of you think there, there could be a soft landing. Maybe one of you has a yes and one of you has a no, but that's the question. I'll go with a yes, but I don't think you take that bet. I'm trying not to take yeah. that bet. Just what record. do you think about, so more potential in fixed income than equity markets now that the Fed and Bank of Canada have telegraphed interest rate hikes seem to have come to, they seem to have telegraphed that they come to an end. So yeah, more potential fixed income or equity. I think I know what you're going to say. Dangerous to be, I think, all fixed income because when the Fed cuts historically, they have a really hard time keeping up with equities. So I would say equities. Look, you could argue that it's different this time, but I would go with equities. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Final thought, Ramona, just quickly. 
great to have you both here. But what would you like to leave investors with? Final thought. Oh gosh, talk about buy Barrons. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that. You can do a great <laughs> advertising job for Barrons. They should really thank us. That's, that's a really good point, right? <laughs> yeah, but just any final thought for investors looking out into twenty twenty four. You know, advice is really helpful. So if you've got great advice, it, it might be another one of these really choppy markets. Yeah. Lean hard on your advice. Ramona Stick Prasad and, and Denise Chisholm, just delightful to see you both. Thank you very much. And uh, if we don't see you before the holidays, I hope you have a great holiday. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.